we are in John chapter 20. And um, boy, I opened my eyes and realized we have new lights up here. It was like an angel <laughs> appearing. <laughs> it's bright. Maybe you don't see that there, but um, it is. It's nice. Thank you, whoever did that. We are in John chapter 20. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, Jesus made an infallible, unqualified declaration. He said to Peter, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower, or ESV says, prevail against it. Of course, the disciples could not have understood all that Jesus meant by that statement. It wasn't until after the resurrection that they began, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, formulating a biblical ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church. But at the very least, they would have understood that Jesus was talking about gathering a people who would willingly follow him wherever he led. The word for church, ecclesia, means to call out, to call out. Jesus was going to build a group of people, a following of called out ones, a group of disciples from every nation and every kindred, every tribe, every tongue, who would be used to achieve God's mission in the world. There was no ambiguity about Jesus' intentions. He made it perfectly clear. I will build my church, the only institution that God is building in the world. And ultimately, really, the only thing God is doing in the world is building his church through 10,000 means. He is pursuing that end. He declared emphatically that he would build his church. How emphatically was this pronouncement? Well, so confident was Jesus that he would be successful in building his church that he said not even Hades, that is death. It's not hell, it's not Satan, it's not demons. Death, not even death, would derail his plan. Now, if you were one of the 12 hand-picked disciples of Jesus, this is an exciting prospect. I mean, after all, the man who made this bold declaration has proven beyond any doubt that he had, to, he had the power to accomplish it. He could accomplish anything he desired to accomplish. In the children's catechism that Spurgeon used to use, one of the questions was, can God do all things? And the answer the children used to repeat back to us was, yes, God can do all his holy will. He can't sin, that's not in his holy will. But he can do everything that he wants to do, everything that he sets out to do. And so he healed the sick, he could walk on water, he could calm the raging storm, he created food, he even raised the dead. And more than that, if the Old Testament prophet Elijah and the other prophets were a shadow of the coming Christ, then surely, if necessary, though it never happened in Jesus' time, he could have made it even rain. Now, I got thinking about all of this. I mean, I met Israel would be the place to be. Israel would be pack up, love Texas, leave Texas, because if Jesus is there, it's you got to be there. I mean, this would be the land flowing with milk and honey. He could make it rain. He could banish the enemies. He could heal the sick. He could raise the dead. I mean, it would be perfection. It would be utopia. And 
they would be his vice regents. They would be his cabinet, his top men. Can you imagine? Israel would be more prosperous if Jesus were king than mighty King Solomon could ever have imagined. Needless to say, his disciples had great expectations. <laughs> I mean, they were fishermen. I mean, this had to blow their minds. Never formally educated, except maybe, you know, in the early synagogue schools so they could read and write. Every time Jesus did something new, it would have filled them with a greater sense of excitement and expectation. And they knew that on, on the day that Jesus took over the government and expelled the Romans, they, the twelve, would hold the highest offices in the lands. And that, that no doubt, was what provoked the argument on more than one occasion between the disciples as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. I mean, we're all going to be there. We're going to sit on these 12 thrones, these 12 seats of power. But who's going to be prime minister? Jesus is king. Who's going to be prime minister? It's going to be me. And that's what they argued about. They were absolutely convinced that Jesus was the promised Christ, the promised Messiah, the prophesied king of whom it had been written that the government would rest upon his shoulders. I mean, this was not subjective. They saw it in the Old Testament. They knew the Old Testament. That was the only testament that existed. And they knew it. When the Messiah comes, he will reign with a rod of iron and he would subdue the nations. And they were going to be a part of that. There had never been such a time of expectation in Israel. The king had arrived, and the disciples were his hand-picked assistants. Oh, the wonder. Oh, the sense of expectation and joy. But then John 18 and 19 come along, and a very dense black cloud arose on the horizon of redemptive history. And it suffocated all their hopes and dispelled all, all of their joy. It was Passover week, time for the killing of the Passover lamb. And Jesus, the son of man who came to be the lamb who would be slain for a once for all perfect sacrifice, the Messiah King is dead. He's dead. That was the whole point of Chapter 18 and 19. John is establishing Jesus is really and truly dead. And since the king was dead, when he died, the church went with him, as far as they were concerned. Whatever this is, I will build my church, that's over. Didn't build it. And with the death of the king came the death of their expectation and joy. Gone. It's all gone. It's all gone. Everything they had hoped for, everything they imagined, every interpretation they had of Old Testament prophecies relative to the coming king, all of it were dashed to bits. And there they were, with nothing but fear and weeping, just endless weeping, endless weeping. Just, we'll read about Mary here. You only have to read between the lines a little bit to get the distinct impression that the disciples, both men and women, are absolutely devastated by the crucifixion. They were not expecting this. They weren't plotting for Jesus' resurrection. It caught them more off guard than, than anybody. Everybody else 
you know, at least a huge number of people wanted him dead. And, and, and they had to be thinking along the way, any time now, any time, he's going to pull the, the sheet off, and there he is with his scepter, with his power, with his throne. It just, it never happened. And he's dead. And with it went the church, with it went joy, with it went expectation. It was gone. Now we, we return to John 20, and one of the themes that we discover is not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the resurrection of the disciples' joy. And two things here, and I don't know that we'll get to both of them, but number one, joy, the joy of resurrected faith, and number two, the joy of resurrected mission. The joy of resurrected mission. Let's look at the joy of resurrected faith, and we'll spend most of our time, if I have a little bit of time at the end, uh, we may briefly look at joy of resurrected mission. But joy of resurrected faith, when, when we read this narrative, and we will in a second, when we read it as if for the first time, the appearance of Jesus seems to catch each person that he visits totally off guard. They are completely surprised because it had been made so clear that he was really and truly dead. His death was so obvious and universally accepted, both by friend and foe alike, that all the, all the, the characters mentioned here in, in this chapter, of all of them, not a single one, not a single one of them believes or feigns any hope that Jesus had survived. No one. Not one of them exhibits the slightest modicum of faith in the predictions of Jesus about his resurrection or the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's resurrection. It completely escapes them. Nobody believes. Pilate doesn't believe. The Romans don't believe. Uh, the Sanhedrin, they believe he's dead. They just want to make sure everybody knows he's dead. And the disciples are devastated because they absolutely believe he's dead. And he is. He was. But when Jesus arrives on the scene, in each case, he appears as a welcome, almost unbelievable surprise to them all. And we see it kind of one at a time. And I'm going to hit one and see if we have time for more, but Number one, the, the resurrection of Mary's faith. The resurrection of Mary. And we're talking about Mary Magdalene. I, I said I would read the passage, and we're getting there. I'm going to read it. This is where we left off last week. Mary Magdalene is absolutely beside herself with grief. She cannot stop crying. And she was the one whom Jesus had rescued from the torment of seven demons, Luke 8 tells us. And so does Mark 16. The one who anointed Jesus' feet with the costly perfume and wiped them with her hair. She who had known best, she was known best for sitting undistractedly at Jesus' feet to listen to his every word. She who courageously stood near the cross when most of the disciples fled for their lives. She who witnessed him being nailed to the cross and heard his final cry. She of all people appears to be most stricken with unquenchable grief. She is devastated. 
Love and loyalty to Christ she maintained in the fullest measure, no doubt. But the faith that she once had in him is the Messiah King is gone. It's over. I mean, the subject never even came up. Now, all she can think about is locating the corpse. She wants to have a proper burial. She wants to finish the job. She wants to at least make sure he is taken care of. And so she repeatedly says, if you know where he is, tell me so that I can take him away, as if she could do that by herself. That's all she can think about. Where is his body? Where is his body? Where is his body? No thought of resurrection. Nevertheless, she was about to experience the supreme joy of her resurrected faith in Jesus. And that is where we come to the text. So, verse 11 of John 20. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. Remember that opening to the tomb is not what they typically show in pictures, this big thing that you know two or three people could walk in at the same time. It's a cave. It's a, it's a small hole, less than three feet tall. You had to get on your knees and crawl in. She stoops and looks into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white standing where the body of Jesus, I'm sorry, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said, because they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. But she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried away carried him away. Tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said, no, no, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to the brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and to your father, to my God and my God, your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. We should notice here that the grave clothes in the empty tomb inspired neither resurrection faith in Jesus nor resurrection joy. She was not impressed by the clothes being left there, and she was not impressed by the angels. <laughs> it, it almost made me laugh as I read it this time. I don't know how many times I've read this, and it just now occurred to me the kind of response. She, I mean, they're angels. And they usually have to say, don't be afraid. And here they are. She looks in the tomb. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And, and she said to them, because they've taken away the Lord and I don't know where they've laid him. I mean, <laughs> it's almost, you're angels. I mean, don't you know? I mean, and that's important, I think. I, I think that, that shows us something of what the condition of her heart is right now. She's all so overwhelmed by the reality that he's dead that even the appearance of angels doesn't dislodge her unbelief at this point. We're not accusing her of being faithless 
in the sense that she was disloyal. No, 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 no. She is the one who is standing at the grave. This is Mary Magdalene. I mean, and yet she's so overcome by grief. So overcome by grief. She was one of the few people who actually looked inside the tomb. She saw the grave. She even saw the angels. And and notice the question the angels ask her. Why are you weeping? The implication there, as I said last week, was this is not a time for weeping. This is a time for joy. As if she knew or should have known what had happened by seeing the open tomb and the empty grave clothes. But even that did not revive Mary's faith. Not even when she turned around and saw Jesus with her very own tear-filled eyes was she revived. So convinced was she that he was dead that her eyes could not register recognition. But he spoke. And the first time he speaks, that doesn't register either. But then... She heard him call her name, Miriam, Miriam. That unique tone and accent with which he'd always spoken to her so many, many times. Then her heart leapt with inexpressible, almost unbelieving joy. And and perhaps that's why she lunged for him. I gotta know he's not a ghost. And he's gonna deal with that in two weeks here in this text. The whole issue with Thomas is, is he a ghost? Surely he's not a spirit. He's standing right in front of me. When I read this part of the story, I can't help but remember John chapter 10. You remember John 10? This is Jesus teaching on the good shepherd And he says a couple of things there worthy of note by way of looking forward to this day. And he says this in verse um, verse 3. He says, The good shepherd calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And in verse 27, he famously said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them. And they follow me. Now, the direct implication or meaning of that text is this. That those who follow me by hearing my voice will not follow a false shepherd. They will not follow a wolf in sheep's clothing. And if they do follow for some time, It won't be long. They will quit him and return to Jesus. When they hear the master's voice, I can't tell you how many times people have come. There's so much going on in the church these days, so much dog and pony stuff going on in worship services right now. It's all about the experience, all about the experience, all about the experience. I mean, experience is everything. The lighting, the the paint, usually black, it's... It's, it's, for Jesus, it wasn't that way. Atmosphere wasn't everything. Lighting wasn't everything. Everything was in his word. His word. 
And we, in Sunday school this morning, we talked about when Satan arrived in the garden and, and started talking to Eve. What did he do? He started assaulting God's word. Has God really said? But when God's true sheep hear his voice in his word, their little ears perk up. They hear the master. They hear the master. Oh, for biblical preaching, beloved. Oh, for biblical preaching and teaching. Um, today, God doesn't speak to us in audible messages from heaven, but he does speak to us through his word, even still today. It is his word that gives rise to saving faith. It is his word that directs us and encourages us. It's his word that disciplines and inspires us to worship. Mary's faith was resurrected by the same means with which her brother Lazarus was raised from the tomb, namely the voice, the word of Jesus. He is, after all, the living word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And that life was the light of the world. He came into his own, and his own did not receive him. But to all who receive him, to them he gives the right to be called children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He's the Word. And the word speaks, and when the word speaks, things happen. Let there be light, and there was. Let there be water, let there be life on this planet, and there was birds and grass and trees. And the word of Jesus, the word of God. Beloved, everything hangs on the word of God. And so many people in the church today profess to belong to Jesus and they express loyalty to him by attending church and giving of their money. That's good. That's good. But they don't truly know him because they never read his word. Do you read the Bible? Do you read the Bible? I'm not even talking about study the Bible. I hope you study the Bible. Do you read the scriptures? Do you listen to the scriptures? If maybe you're not able to read the scriptures, sometimes early in the morning, it's really hard to read, so I listen. Are you being fed the word of God? Does the word of God nourish you? Does it, does it, does it bring health and vitality to your soul? Does it bring joy to you, conviction, repentance? To know Jesus is to know his word. I, I was talking to a, a guy this week who worked in a, a cabinet shop, and uh, uh, I started, we, we started talking about the Lord together. I wanted to find out if he knew the Lord, and he told me his story, and I won't tell you all of it, because a lot of it's weird, but, um, but he said, you know, I thought I was a believer, and then one day it struck me, I've claimed to be a believer all these years, and, and yet I don't read the Bible. I thought it was perfect for this little section of this message, and he said, so I said to the Lord, I'm not going to listen to Pastor Isaiah, and I'm not going to listen to uh, Pastor whoever, Dr. whoever, 
right now. I'm going to read your word. I'm still going to go to church, but my focus is going to be on reading your word. And so here's the deal. You speak to me through your word, and I'll give you 10 minutes a day. And, uh, and at first, I reacted like you did. Oh, come on. Okay, but this guy's an unbeliever. He's bargaining. And, um, and so he said, first day, I read, I read for 10 minutes. I watched the clock. 10 minutes went by, closed the Bible. And he said, didn't understand a word of it. Second day, opened up the Bible, read for 10 minutes, watched the clock. 10 minutes is up, closed the Bible, didn't, didn't, didn't get anything out of it. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, he said, I'm keeping my word. 10 minutes. He said, I started reading the word. And it was like, I suddenly began to understand it. It was as if God was speaking to me through his word. And I got done, and I looked up 35 minutes. The next day, I started reading his word. I looked at the clock two hours. My sheep hear my voice. They love my word. Do you love his word? Um, I hope you do. Apparently, Mary, upon hearing Jesus' voice, recognizing that he was alive, spontaneously stepped forward to embrace him. But Jesus stopped her, saying, verse 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. Now, this statement has been picked apart, and everybody tries to give interpretation on this, and it is hard. This is one of the most difficult lines in all of the Gospel of John because it, it's somewhat cryptic, and, uh, and, and so we have to be careful and we can't be dogmatic in, in how we approach this because John doesn't give us any explanation. Sometimes he does. Sometimes he says things like uh, when Jesus was talking about the well of water springing up from within you, uh, John will say, by this he meant the Holy Spirit. Okay, well, I wouldn't have gone there if John hadn't told me. But here's a part of, the, of John's testimony of the gospel. He's giving us Jesus' words where he lays it out there, and he's moving forward, and he, he doesn't take the time to explain it, nor does he explain it anywhere else in his text, nor does Matthew, Mark, or Luke explain it, or the apostle. It's just there. And so we're left to say, what could it mean? What, what could he be referring to? And so with that caveat, let me give you a couple of, a couple of uh, options here, and maybe both. Many have argued that Jesus' concern here was that Mary was clinging so as never to let him go. And maybe she was already clinging to him. It's hard to tell from his choice of words here. Jesus, however, had explained to his disciples that it was necessary for him to leave that he might send the Holy Spirit. And he had made it clear in chapter 16, verse 7, when he said, if I do not go away, the helper, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so Jesus could not stay and enjoyed uninhibited fellowship with his disciples. It, it, the, the idea here is that Mary has been so grief-stricken, so devastated by his absence. I mean, he's dead. And now he's alive. You know, I mean, if you ever lost one of your kids and found them, you just grab them. Never going to let you go. Never going to let you go. Never going to let you go. And, and it seems like she had that mindset. I'm going to keep you for myself, and I will never lose you again. 
So Jesus, knowing that he couldn't stay in unabated fellowship with her or with everyone else, he had to ascend to his father. Mary wanted him to be near, but he couldn't feel, fulfill her desires. Fellowship with him would henceforth be in the Spirit. Relationship with him would be in the person of the Holy Spirit, with a few exceptions where he would appear, interestingly enough, each time he appears early on here, it's on Sunday. And the Lord doesn't give us a command to meet on Sunday, but the pattern is he shows up on Sunday, whether you know, you're here or not. But um, fellowship with him would be in the Spirit. Relationship with him would be in the person of the Holy Spirit. In fact, we see as early as Acts chapter 1, verse 2, that even before Jesus ascended, he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. That's a direct quote. He had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. This before his ascension. He's already inspiring. He's already speaking by the Spirit to the apostles, and they know it. And you kind of get the sense, as I read that and put it in the, the time frame of Jesus still on the earth, hasn't quite ascended yet into heaven, that it's almost as if he's training them in this. You need to know this is how it's going to be. I will fellowship with you in the Spirit. I will speak to you and command you in the Spirit. You are my apostles to the world. He is the Spirit of truth. He will come and give you the truth. He will remind you of the things that I have spoken to you. Now, I must say that I appreciate this explanation and and honestly, I agree with it. And there's probably more to it than that. Other people add different things that, that could equally fit here. Although I must say, I, I'm dissatisfied with the fact that this view, left to itself, doesn't account for why did Jesus say to Mary, you may not cling to me, but in Matthew 28, verse 9, when the women come and they all kind of fall at his feet and they're grabbing at his ankles, you know, they're, they're holding on to him. I mean, they are so overwhelmed that he's alive. Their joy bursts into life. Their faith comes back to life. And they grab onto him. And, and it was okay. But for Mary, it wasn't okay. J.C. Ryle's thoughts on the subject are worth considering. He says this. Let me, however, never, let it, however, never be forgotten, and in parenthesis he says, and I desire to speak with the utmost reverence and delicacy that when our Lord allowed the women mentioned in Matthew 28 to hold him by the feet, there were several of them women several present together at the same time, mothers, and not young. When on the contrary, he said to Mary Magdalene, do not touch me, he spoke to one who in all probability was a young woman, and he and, he and she were alone. And I thought, that's helpful. That's helpful. Everything else, probably true too. That's no bearing on this. But Jesus' discretion here, I think, is beautiful. As much as she wanted to wrap his arms, her arms around him, no, no, no. 
It's almost, I told my wife this last week, it's almost as if Jesus was sabotaging the Da Vinci Code mentality <laughs> 2,000 years before it ever came on the scene. You know, the whole idea that Jesus and, and Mary were in love, that, that he really didn't die and he really didn't rose again, that was kind of a sleight of hand kind of thing. And then they, they got together and left for England where they lived out their years or something like that. I, I didn't actually read the Da Vinci Code, but something along those lines. And here Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Don't cling to me. And I, and I would just say, by way of application, some of you young men and women are, because you live in this culture, are okay with what would otherwise be seen as indiscretion in your relationship with one another, because it's accepted. And I would say, if your model is Jesus Christ, be far more careful than the culture. Um, it is not legalism to say, please don't, don't touch me, don't cling to me, don't hold me, I'm your sister, I'm your brother, and maybe we'll marry, and then that'll be good. But not now. Not now. I'm not, in, I'm not calling you to true love weights. I'm calling you to something higher. If our model is Jesus Christ, then follow his example. Well, we need to keep on. Now, let me just say this. <laughs> the Apostle Paul exhorts in Ephesians 5.3, there should not even be a hint of impurity in your fellowship with a young lady. And later, that same apostle teaches young men to relate to young women as sisters in all purity. And I would just say, I'm sure he knew that from his culture and from the law. But here is Jesus modeling it. And I think it's beautiful. Now, back to the narrative. Instead of allowing Mary to embrace him, he immediately sends her on a mission. Mary, don't touch me. I've got something for you to do. Focus. <laughs> Which is helpful. You know, when we're trying to help guys who are struggling with sexual sin, one of the things is, there's, there's a whole list of them, but one of them is move. Get busy serving other people. Go. And I'm not implying anything about Mary here. I'm just saying it's good. It's good to be on mission, to be on mission, to be on mission. It helps you not get distracted by the currents, the wind and the waves of the world or your emotions to lead you as, as clearly was happening here, Mary's emotions were leading her to do something that the Lord didn't think was proper. He immediately sends her on a mission. Verse 17, second half of verse 17. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now, this is the first time in the gospel record where Jesus refers to his disciples as brothers. Isn't that interesting? He calls them other things. He's referred to them as servants. He's referred to them as disciples and, and perhaps even apostles, even friends. But not as relation. Now it, now it is that he seeks to elevate their status even further. 
Now, after the resurrection, he is elevating them. And we should find this remarkable in the light of the fact that their most recent actions revealed hearts that were at their lowest point of unbelief, fear, and disloyalty to him. They all, with the exception of John, abandoned him. Peter repeatedly denying him, the third time with cursing and swearing. And then instead of the disciples exercising courage enough to ask for and tend to Jesus' body, that job was taken up by two secret disciples who had been a part of the very ecclesiastical body that had arrested and condemned him. Where are the apostles? Where are the disciples? Where are the faithful? They are, at this point, unfaithful, disloyal, discouraged, despondent, unbelieving. But it is now, of all times, that Jesus honors them and elevates them to the status of brother. In his inimitable way, Charles Spurgeon writes this, All the time they were true and faithful, he called them friends. You would have thought that when three of them slept in the garden during his awful agony, when all forsook him and fled, and when especially Peter denied him, the Savior would have said, I called you friends when you were faithful. I will now see whether I can stretch the point and call you servants. Spurgeon, got to love it. But we see, he writes, that the blacker their sin was, the stronger was his love. The more defiled they were, the more sweetly did he talk to them. He said to them, in deeds, though not with words, henceforth I call you not friends, for a mere friend is no relation, but I call you brethren, for my father is your father, and my God is your God. Spurgeon writes, carry these sweet thoughts with you, that the higher the Savior gets, the more free he is in expression of his love, and that the further disciples ran away from their master, the more lovingly did he call them back again. Who, can it, who cannot derive comfort from such thoughts as these? And some of you hearing my voice right now need to hear that. I suspect there are some who are listening right now who need such comfort this morning because I know for certain one thing. I'm standing in a room full of sinners and you're looking at a pulpit behind which there is another. In your conversation with other people, you appear to have it all together, but deep inside, your own unfaithfulness plagues you and robs you of joy. You feel guilty because you are guilty. And you know that. But rather than run to Christ, rather than flee and fly to the cross, rather than run to him who has completely and eternally paid for your sins, you hide from him like Adam and Eve. You cover your sin and hide when he calls. Can you not this moment see the the mercy of Christ? Can you not apprehend the love of Christ who rather than waiting for you to repent is actually seeking, serving, blessing you with divine favor? He, like 
the father of the prodigal son is running toward you, not hiding from you or running away from you. He's got ring in hand, his signet ring of authority, the shoes of his presence, the robe of righteousness, ready to wrap it around you, and he is running to you. Do you imagine that your sin is deeper than his love? Do you contrive that your own self-righteousness can purify you better than his blood? Do you think that he will receive you more willingly if you punish yourself and polish up on your own unrighteousness first? Have you forgotten that he died not for the righteous but for sinners? Have you forgotten that he is the God who justifies who? The ungodly. Have you never read that where sin abounded, grace much more abounds? Oh, my friend, behold the awesome glory of the love and mercy of Christ. It is too much for us to take in. And even Paul, as he's trying to explain this in Romans, he has to say, he has to ask questions like, well, then shall we sin so that grace may abound? And I take it, what he's saying is, if you're asking that question, you are right on track because that's how great God's mercy is. And no, you shouldn't sin that grace may abound. But know this, it abounds so magnificently that it's appropriate for your soul to ask that question and receive the inspired answer. Never fear that he will refuse to forgive you. Rather, fear that your own heart will deceive you into thinking that his love is anything but lavishly forgiving. And if you are a child of God and you are listening to this and it's resonating with you and the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart through this this morning, I would say to you, confess your sin because you are already forgiven in Christ. You are already forgiven. And while you're busy condemning yourself, he stands before the Father unashamed to call you his brother, his sister. And come to him with your failures. Come to him with your sin. Come to him with your pride. Come to him with your lust, your resentment, your unfaithfulness. Come to him like the prodigal, and you will soon discover that though you have been denying him, his faithfulness to you has never wavered, and his affection for you has only grown stronger because that is the nature and character of God. God is love. Love is not God. But God is infinite in all of his perfections, and one of them is love. There is no such thing as love if there is not God. He is the standard and the source of it. Because in Jesus' death and resurrection and exaltation, his disciples have come to share in his sonship with the Father. That's why he loves us like this. Jesus' mission is accomplished. They are rescued. They are set free from the penalty of sin. 
We are not sons of God in the same way that Jesus is a son of God. But in him, we are now reckoned by the Father as his sons and daughters. We are adopted children into his forever family and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Because he has died. And because he lived a perfect life. And because he is risen. I believe this is something of what Peter was referring to when later in 1 Peter 1.3 he says, According to his great mercy, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love it. As Brent Osterberg often says, hope is alive because Jesus is alive. He is the source of it all. This is what Mary Magdalene discovered afresh on that day before the empty tomb. And this is what the disciples would soon discover when she came to them with Jesus' message. And so she went. She went. She went upon the errand that Jesus sent her on and entering the house where the disciples were, she announced, remember her message? The message she was giving, tell them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. And she arrives and she says, I've seen the Lord. That's the most important thing right now. And, John says, and that he had said these things to her. So she delivered the message. But John wants us to see that Mary was so overwhelmed now, not with grief, but with joy and faith. That the first thing she says is, I've seen the Lord, and he has spoken to me. Mary's joy was the joy of a resurrected faith. But the disciples weren't ready for that yet. Mark reveals that their faith was as dead as Mary's had been. When she came to them, he says, they were all still mourning and weeping. And when she delivered Jesus' message, no one believed her. No one believed her. Peter, James, John had a, was figuring it out. Bartholomew, I don't know. Thomas. Who knows where Thomas was? But she delivered the message and, and they didn't believe. How could they? And let's not condemn them. I mean, there she was at the empty tomb looking at two angels, and she didn't believe. And she turned around, and she's looking dead at Jesus, and she still doesn't believe. And then finally, third shot, scores. She hears his voice. Miriam, in that tone, that inflection, that accent with which she, he had always spoken to her. And she believed. But he wasn't there. And they had to take it by faith that her word was true, but they weren't ready to believe. They weren't ready to believe. Can I take a couple more minutes? Thank you. <laughs> Systematically, if we um, harmonize the Gospels, 
when we see Jesus making other appearances, one by one, or sometimes one to a group. In Matthew 28, 9 and 10, he appears to the group of women. They hadn't seen him yet. Mary was the first one, which tempted me. I even wrote paragraphs on this. Why did he um, appear to Mary first? Spurgeon says, well, that's easy. He's the God of grace. Mary was, the, I mean, uh, Eve was the first to sin, and God is undoing that. So he speaks to a woman first. John MacArthur says the reason that, that he spoke to Mary first is because she was there. <laughs> that's, that's helpful. If you want to hear him, be there. <laughs> I think his point was her loyalty and her love for Christ kept her there. But, um, wow, he has a way with words. It's great. Um, and so he appears to the other women, unbelieving, unbelieving. And he appears, and they fall down, and they grab onto his legs. And they're worshiping. And he's as if to say, that's good, that's good. Keep on doing that. And then Luke 24, 13 through 32, that long paragraph where the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, right? And so some of this had already happened. Jesus had been crucified. It's now Sunday, Sunday, probably mid-morning. And they decide, uh, we got to go home. We just got to get home. I don't know why. Resupply maybe and come back. I don't know why. But they, you know, it makes me question, why? Why now? I mean, you're starting to get reports. They, they clearly told Jesus when Jesus unbeknownst to them, comes and starts walking with them. They, for some reason, they don't see the scores, scars on their hands, probably because his scars were on his wrists. They didn't see the scars on his feet. Um, they didn't recognize his voice. Jesus apparently was hiding himself in some spiritual, miraculous way so that they couldn't recognize him. And he's saying, hey, why, what are you guys talking about? And they said, are you the only one in Jerusalem who doesn't know what happened? And we thought he was going to be the Messiah, and now he's dead but, but some are saying that the tomb is empty and, and maybe he's risen. And he says, oh, wicked and unbelieving of heart. And from there, he opens up all the scriptures and reveals to them himself everywhere. By the way, just as an aside, I learned something this week about this. We know that one of the disciples was Clopas, Right? Don't know who the other one was. And I think it was Edersheim, theologian, um, pointed out that some believe that Luke, who recorded this story for us, was doing what John did in his gospel, cameoing himself but not naming himself. Hence, the length of this chapter and, uh, or this story and the detail that he gives he knows everything that's going on, what was said, what was done. And then he says, uh, were not our hearts ablaze as he spoke and broke the bread? Were not our hearts stirred? Because why? Jesus, when, they broke the, when he broke the bread, he allowed them to see who he was and then disappeared. And what did they do? They grabbed up the, their things six miles back to Jerusalem. They started hoofing it. What was it? Restored, resurrected faith. 
and joy. And then um, the disciples in the upper room, that's next here, in John 20, starting with verse 19. And somewhere along the way, we learn in Luke 24, because one of, the, one of those two uh, disciples says so, that Jesus also appeared to Peter. That's all we have on that account. Wouldn't you have liked to have been a fly on the wall or on the tree, wherever they met? What did he say to him? What did Peter say in response? We will never know this side of heaven. But it must have been wonderful. In each case, the sight of Jesus resurrects their faith and restores their joy. Jesus will say, you believe because you have seen. And for our sakes, he says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. But you know what? They had to see first so that there would be testimony for us to believe. I praise God that they saw. I praise God for Thomas. I love Thomas. Doubting Thomas, yes. The purpose, his purpose in this book, don't miss it in two weeks. His purpose in the book of John is fantastic. And you don't want to miss it, I hope. In John 16, 20, truly, truly. Oh, John 15, 11, first. Jesus said this, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be what? Full. In John 16, 20, truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice and you will grieve, but your grief will be turned into what? Joy. That's why I'm calling it resurrected joy. It is resurrected faith that is producing within them joy. Next week when we come back to this passage, I, I want us to look at the joy of resurrected mission. But I don't have enough time really to get into it. But that's when there, I'll give you a little trailer, okay? Preview of coming attractions. They're in the upper room and, and all the apostles, the, the disciples, the men, the women, everybody, they're coming back to this one place, this room. And everybody's saying what they saw and what they heard. They're gathering their testimony to verify. And the doors are locked because they're afraid of the Jews. And something incredible happens. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> And it is so joyful and so remarkable. And he appears twice that one day, Sunday, Sunday morning, and then again on Sunday evening, and then again the next Sunday evening. And I can't wait to tell you about it. Father, thank you for your word and for the joy of reading it and studying it and, and seeing your glory and your compassion and your mercy and your loving kindness, which is better than life. We praise you, Father, that, that because of who you are, Jesus, even while we were yet sinners, chose to die for us. And even while the apostles were 
still licking their wounds of regret and remorse because of their sin. And you appear not with condemnation, but with grace and with love and with mercy. And we are undeserving and so grateful. Give us the heart of Mary Magdalene, who though she was possessed by seven demons and had been plagued, no doubt, by all the sin that was associated with that, yet because she was forgiven much, she loved much. May we see our own sin for what it really is, how much it cost you and love you all the more. I pray not that you would lead us into temptation, but merely that you would grant us the humility to see the sin that is already there for what it really is and to worship you because of your sweet and costly forgiveness. Lord, we ask these things to glorify our Savior, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen.